Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on plenary session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session and I'm joined by, and I can't believe it's taken us so long, Bapu Jenna. Let me introduce you, Bapu. Bapu is an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School. He is the Ruth Newhouse Associate Professor of Healthcare Policy. He is also a practicing general internist. He uh, rounds on the teaching service at MGH. He's a graduate of MIT. He went on to do his MD, PhD at the University of Chicago. He did his PhD in economics and he went on to Mass General for his uh, internship and residency, stayed on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. And full disclosure, we've known each other for probably 15 years now. We were medical school classmates. Bapu, it's a pleasure to finally get you on the podcast. <laughs> you basically gave everybody all the information except my social security number. Should you go ahead and provide that also while you're at it? <laughs> I, I, I have that written on a little post-it note on my laptop where I keep my yeah. passwords. Yeah, for yeah. easy access. So this is it. We're finally talking. Uh, I just have a question before we get started. Uh, this is going to be on YouTube, and I got to ask: that, is that plant behind you? Is that real? <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, pretty plastic. <laughs> okay, I was going to say <laughs> it's pretty plastic. You you don't want a it, real plant because it's going to you know have changes uh, as I neglected and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, because so. you know you know the the uh, you know the astute uh, participant will you know watch a couple of these videos over time. So wonder why is that plant never growing? It's never- <laughs> you know, Vinay's getting older, but that plant isn't growing. Yeah, I'm I'm aging by the day. Yeah, but uh, the plant's never changing. Well, you know, I I, I read about about this that you're supposed to have a little bit of greenery in the background and you're supposed to have like a splash of blue and a splash of yellow and i think uh, i think i got that covered yeah, you got it covered yeah yeah you do <laughs> well <laughs> now let's talk about that microphone what kind of microphone you got going on there i don't know the the freakonomics md folks give it to me it it, it says s-h-u-r-e sure oh yeah, but not i'm sure it's good yeah i'm sure it's good right. i'm using i'm using a sure as well are you is Wait, are, you, are we going to be like ads by this microphone company or what? This no. uh, video is sponsored by Sure. Actually, I wish they exactly. were would sponsor it, but yeah, they're yeah. not, they're not going <laughs> to. Um, so let's let's get into a few things, Bapu. Um, you are, of course, the host of Freakonomics MD. You're taking over the Freakonomics franchise. You're branching out into the healthcare economics department. You are a practicing internist. You're also a health economist. Um, I want to back up. Let's. I'm going to go through all your papers and everything, but I want to back up. You were an undergraduate at MIT. How the hell did you even think to apply for MSTP and do economics? How did you even get there? Uh, I was. I mean, it was, it was actual um, pure chance. Um, I um, I studied biology and economics in college. Um, do you know why I studied economics in college? Let me just ask you that. Do you have any I don't ideas? know. Yeah. Why did you study economics? In so college? I studied economics because I thought that like. Um, I was like, there's no way I'm going to get into medical school, even coming from MIT. I was like, I got to do something different. So I was like, I, I got a double major. Yeah. And course. I've got to study a humanity. 
Yeah. And uh, and that's your you call and, it, and it can be humanity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> MIT calls it a humanity. <laughs> and uh, there's the added benefit that I didn't have to take any extra courses uh, beyond the normal course load mm-hmm. to double major in economics and policy. So it was, it was a very practical decision, but it was all oriented in service of going to medical school. And um, while I was in college, I worked in a, a lab at, uh, at Harvard, and um, I started becoming interesting research. And I thought, I want, to st- I want to do an MD, PhD. So I wanted to be a, a clinician scientist, uh, but a basic scientist. And when I was interviewing at programs, um, I remember going to the University of Chicago, I think it was probably December, it was a rainy day. Mm-hmm. And the Must director of- 2000 or so. Yeah, two, uh, yeah, 2000, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the director of the MD PhD program at that time uh, said to me, Oh, yeah. Babu, I see you studied economics. You know, there's a guy who just came back to University of Chicago who's, uh, who did his MD and his PhD in economics there and had gone to train in Boston and, and then came back to the um, uh, Chicago area, University of Chicago, uh, to be a faculty there. Would you want to do your PhD in economics instead? And I said, Well, I mean, University of Chicago is a good place. Um, I'm certainly open to it. And, and literally that afternoon, he called over to the econ department and set up some meetings uh, with econ faculty over there. And a week later, I applied. I, I never took the GRE or anything like that. And um, um, I got in a week after that. It's like it's not, it wasn't a very formal process. And uh, I started taking anatomy that summer in uh, June of 2000. And then uh, in, the, in the fall of 2000, I started taking the uh, econ coursework and, and a couple of med wow. school courses in between. So that person so it was just who chance. It was back, just chance. So that person who would come back, that was Dave Meltzer, I would imagine. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So then um, I've never heard anyone, you got talked into this, like you're, you're getting, you know, you go to buy a car and you end up with an SUV. Uh, you get talked no, into No, no, it's actually, it's, 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 worse, it's worse. You, you, you go to buy a car and you end up with a liver transplant. It's like, it's like I mean, you know, yeah, really, immunology yeah, yeah, and economics yeah. are like the yeah, complete yeah. opposite, you know, but yeah. I, I had insurance. And what um, do I mean by that? I mean, if I wasn't going to, if I didn't do well in the econ program, which was certainly a possibility because I, I had studied economics yeah. at a good place. Yeah. Uh, and I was reasonably smart, but I hadn't studied economics to prepare for graduate school, like taking all the advanced mathematics courses like uh, linear algebra and, and um, you know, more advanced courses than that. But you did but have I a TI-89. Enough. You did have a TI-89, so you probably... I think I had there. a TI-89, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> halfway there. Okay. <laughs> but if, I, if the economics thing didn't work out, I would have done cell biology or immunology. So I, I, I had that insurance policy behind me. So I, I, I've heard this story before, and um, I think, and I also know that person. This was Jose Quintus, wasn't it? it must have been. Jose. Yeah, Jose yeah. Quintus, and so yeah. you know, he's a fast-talking, excitable guy, and I can just see him kind of. Oh, you know what? Why, why don't I just walk you into an econ career? But um, you know, it was a very. Um, I don't know. It um, it was such a defini- uh, uh, such a defining choice of your life, really, because. Um, you became a healthcare economist. You did your PhD. You went off to Rand, uh, infolded, and you did a couple years at Rand. I think we first met when I joined University of Chicago a couple years later. Uh, I was just a, I was in the just just an MD track. We call it just <laughs> just an old MD, just an MD track. So, those are your words, not the words of all the other MD PhD students in your class. Just- no, no, they uh, they only say it, uh, yeah, all the time. Um, and you were the TA, I think, initially for one of those second year courses I took. And then you joined our class in third year and we came to know each other over the last few years. But um, yeah, um, and uh, and then we've known each other since. Um, yeah, by the way, you know, my wife, who you know, was, yes. um, uh, I think was in that class. I was, apparently I was her TA. This is what she tells me. 
Yeah, and she can. always she always uh, reminds me that I, I gave her a B, um, <laughs> which is surprising. That, which she would comes forward with her story someday. She'll burn you to the ground. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. B is for burn. <laughs> and uh, of course, yeah, I know your wife, and uh, I think um, you know I was uh, I still am friends with your wife, but I was once I think probably closer friends with her than with you. But uh, yeah. you have a knack for you 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 get in my you call me more, you know you yeah, call me more. It's a, so over the years, it's I supply think, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a demand supply. But yeah, I got a lot of supply. I got a bapu supply. But you know, I'm. Well, anyway, so we got so many to talk, so much to talk about. So let's go through from there. Okay, so then, you know, I remember you on the wards and everybody I knew who said, uh, you know, who saw you on the wards was like, uh, delighted to have you. And, you know, of course, my good friend, Adam Seafew, I think he was your uh, attending for a couple of weeks. And he was like, the thing about Bapu is, he was like, you know, he's like, I'm not sure how interested he is in medicine, but boy, do I like to talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you feel like that's a fair characterization? You, you, of course, you're interested in medicine, but you had your mind is always thinking like an economist. Yeah, I think that, that was a fair characterization. And you know, I um I get emails all the time, and probably you do about from students who are in medical school who want to do something else. They want to do yeah. health policy, or maybe they're thinking about doing economics, and they always ask me what they should be doing in medical school. And I tell them what I should have done, which is you should just focus on medical school. Like that is a, the one time in your life where you can learn everything you need to learn or you can learn about uh, about medicine. But I remember in medical school, I was I was working on research papers and and um, thinking about other things. And, and that was great. And it probably in the long term benefited me. Um, but it could have also turned out differently. Um, and so I was fortunate that I, I worked hard enough to learn what I needed to learn. Uh, but it it would certainly be an accurate characterization that when uh, when I was on a team uh, with uh, other medical students and interns and residents, um, people would look to me more for kind of interesting ideas and economic points as opposed <laughs> to what's the differential diagnosis for this person's substernal. <laughs> crushing chest pain. <laughs> yeah. But I, I also want to not give you too much of a hard time because you're certainly not one of those doctors who, um, you know, I, uh, I'll say I occasionally cross paths with some of these MSTPs who do a half day clinic and then they just do their lab work or whatever. And then I, I, the more I know about that half day clinic, the more my eyebrows crinkle. I'm like, Oh my God, what are you, what are you doing? My friend? I was like, Oh no, 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 you're not that. No, you are, you are an internist. You, you keep up with medicine and you practice well. And um, you know, we've many times we've talked about some clinical scenarios and stuff that I think are very interesting. I was a different medical student than you in the sense that, you know, I wasn't going to do research. I'm pretty sure when I was a third year and fourth year, you know, certainly nobody, nobody looked, my CV is blank. So no one would think I would want to do research. <laughs> um, but I came to it the back uh, on the back end. So let's talk about you decided to go to man's greatest hospital, the Massachusetts General Hospital. You want to talk about that? I don't know if you want to get into some of the work you yeah, did on that space. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just match. You, know, <laughs> you know, we're, we're originally, yeah, we're originally from a, a no, not you were born in born in the U.S., right? I was born in yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, I was too. But you know, our parents obviously yeah, come from right. somewhere else. And uh, uh, wait, and, and they, in that country, you know they that? refer to they refer to MGH as Mumbai's greatest hospital. I just want to <laughs> just want to make sure that Mumbai's greatest, yeah, uh, clear. Um, are you referring to the paper on the residency communications? Is that what you're referring yes. to? Oh yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this is relevant for anybody who's uh, has applied to residency or is in medical school. Um, uh, I remember this really clearly, uh, and, and I wrote a paper about it. So it's kind of a fun story. I had applied to a bunch of places like most people do. 
Um, I'm happy to say, and I'm proud to say that Mass General was actually not my first choice. Uh, it was my second choice, uh, but I trained at Mass General. So that tells you something about whether or not I matched at my, my preferred um, um, hospital. I won't, I won't name it. Can I name it? If you want, no, no, I'm not. I'm I, not going to. I think I it'll many, be obvious. I, have too, I think there's only. I have too many close colleagues, okay. and by close, I mean they're literally right down the street. Uh, <laughs> no, but <laughs> anyway, yeah. I I did match there. Yeah, and um, but what was interesting about that experience was that I actually thought I was going to match there, right. and I didn't think I was going to match there because I was like, oh, I'm so good or whatever. Yeah, I I thought I was going to match there because there was a they series told of communications. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's like some some discussion yeah. that was uh, vague, but also the type of thing that you wouldn't say to someone unless you were trying to send a signal of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't say the exact language that was used, but you know, as a as a you know youngster who didn't know anything about the process, I certainly left that thinking I have this really good chance I'm gonna um, match here. Only years later, when I talked to people who actually matched there, did I realize that the language that was used was different. So I'm just gonna give an example. Yeah, Bapu, I look forward to watching movies with you together. Yeah, versus Bapu. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. a little bit different language, yeah, right? Or yeah. see you in a couple of months. Um, so anyway, that that <laughs> kind of a that that kind of um, uh, I, I don't know if I'd use the word annoyed me, but it 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 left an impression on me. Yeah, and it left enough of an impression on me that um, I uh, I I spoke to Vinny Aurora, who is another uh, uh, mm. mentor of ours uh, at the University of Chicago. And I said to her, Vinny, it's like you know these sorts of communications must happen quite often, where right. you know candidates or applicants are getting implicit promises from programs and there are actually guardrails around what programs can say and not say and and what we basically showed in this study was that these sorts of communications are are really quite prevalent uh these implicit promises um and they shouldn't be that way no it's uh, it's it's the programmatic equivalent of heavy flirting if you ask me exactly and i will say that every time i go to this institution which is pretty regularly and I speak to the residents that they they often ask me to come and talk about my work. Mm-hmm. The first thing I say is, I could have been you. <laughs> <laughs> or no, I, sh- I couldn't have been. I should have been you. Should have been but you. But it all but, turned out okay. I can't Yeah, well, I mean, it turned out good. And I think there are a lot of people who may have inverted that rank list because man's greatest hospital has a certain reputation and a certain <laughs> sort of clinical cash. I mean, there's something to be said for being an MGH resident. It means you have a forever short coat because you're always learning. But um you know, back when we trained, oh, let's talk about that a second. You know, all these kids these days with their work hour rules that they actually follow. But when back <laughs> when we trained, when when doctors were giants, um, you know, we had we had the uh, what was it called the thirty hour work rule, but it wasn't really enforced that well. We had the eighty hour week rule, um, and that was also kind of not always enforced so well. But the thirty hours consecutive hours, I mean, we often would spill over. So you know, you go to work at six a.m. on one day, you're not out the next day till like one two in the afternoon. You did that. Unbeaten. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I mean, but, but I, I would say like my experience was was pretty good. I mean, they we were, I think, at the tail end when they were taking this stuff, starting to take this stuff pretty seriously. Yeah. seriously. This was after the ACGME duty, quite a bit after the ACGME yeah. duty hour reforms. And I think in, in, in the initial period after the reforms, hospitals weren't doing a great job of um, of um, um, uh, adhering to the duty hour re- requirements. But when I was around, it was it was, I think, pretty good. That's not to say that it was easy. I remember being on the uh, medical ICU block, and we were Q3, 30-hour yeah. call, Yeah, uh, meaning you'd get there at 7, you'd yeah. leave at 12, you, you get there at 7 on a Monday morning, yeah. you leave at 12 on Tuesday, 
you'd come back on Wednesday at seven and go to like five. And then Thursday, you're back for a 30 hour call. Now that's nothing compared to the older people who are doctors yeah, who are listening to your show, but it was hard and it, and it still continues to be hard for everybody. I think. Yeah. It's hard in different ways. I mean, um, the older doctors, I just have a knock on them. You know, they always talk to me about their Q2 call, but and then they, then they tell me, you know, you know, it's really rough. Sometimes you'd only get four hours a night to read in the call room and sleep. I was like four hours to sit in the call room. That's not a call. My friend, call is you're on your feet the whole 30 hours. That's a call, you know, because it, medicine had stepped up. And I think we've talked about that. I think we did a paper on it once, um, about just the number of things that happened in the hospitalization has all been compressed. Um, there's many more things to do. And so, the doctor's like number of tasks is higher today than it was 30 years ago. Didn't we do a paper on that? We did. Yeah, 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 we did. It, it, yeah, because it was it, the, the, the underlying kind of um, stylized fact was if you look at the number of hospital days for, for yes. the average hospitalization and the number of days people spend the hospital in America yeah. over the last 30 <laughs> years, it's gone down a lot. I mean, and, and you know, the stories, if you were treating a heart attack, it used to be that you'd be in the hospital for you know, Until 10 days or two weeks. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The bed rest kicked in. Yeah. But now you could be out all things, yeah. if everything goes well in a couple of a couple of days. So the nature of medicine, the kind of the human capital intensive component of it has changed over time. And it's become more what I would say, tech technology biased to borrow yeah. some language from economics. And that should then have implications for how we train doctors and what we expect in terms of the optimal number of hours they should spend in the hospital. I guess we'll come to that some more. Okay, now I want to get to the next part of your career. Um, when you were a resident, I think you were a resident. I was a resident. I was in Northwestern. You're at MGH. I think that was when you published your Annals of Internal Medicine paper on STDs and use of Viagra. And uh, and then you also published your malpractice paper uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, you made the rest of us look like uh, slouches. <laughs> not a lot of residents are publishing first author New England Journal papers, but you know um, those are both impressive. We can talk about that in a second, but let's talk about your career and where how you end up where you are first. Um, then you ended up deciding... You face the question, the eternal question, fellowship or just start your um, uh, career. And you ended up choosing joining the faculty at uh, uh, health policy at Harvard, Barbara McNeil's division. Um, you ended up uh, continuing your clinical practice. You were going to do uh, hospitalist or teaching service shifts, but you were going to do your research focus. Um, how did you navigate that choice? You could have been well, a cardiologist. You know, when I look at you, yeah, I, see a, I see a cardiologist. So that's what they yeah, say when they see you, me. You see a cardiologist because you see an Indian person on, on Zoom. No, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're both Indians. So there was a 30% chance that we would have ended <laughs> up in cardiology. But then, you know, as with any sort of study, you have to have a baseline. So there's, at baseline, we kind of know 20% of cardiology already. So um, no, I, I thought about fellowship. And um, uh, at that time, there was a start of these sort of programs where you could do two years in residency and then go straight to fellowship. Um, and so you, I could have shaved off some time, but, uh, you know, the discussion about fellowship actually came before that because, you know, I, I did internal medicine and you did internal medicine. I thought about other things uh, as well. Um, and I remember speaking to MD, PhDs at that time at both times. And, and they all said that, uh, you know, to do the kind of stuff that I wanted to do, it would be difficult to do it in a, in a department of surgery or a division of cardiology, because it's very general. It's not like specific to, you know, uh, let's say surgical aortic valve replacements right. versus, uh, transcatheter aortic catheter based aortic valve replacements. Like that's a very specific topic right. that you would work on if you're a cardiologist or a thoracic surgeon, but you wouldn't be working on general stuff typically. Um, yeah. and so that's, that drove the clinical decision. Yeah. So 
being a general internist has allowed you to stay broad. So some of your papers we're going to talk about is probably, you know, what happens to people who have an MI in a town where a marathon is running? What, ha what about, um, are there differences in the care provided if your doctor is a man versus a woman, if you're on a hospital service? What about age? What about where you trained? What about international medical graduate status? Um, the paper that I was talking about that you've published, I think when you're a resident was looking at, do men who get prescribed Viagra, do they have higher rates of subsequent STDs than men who don't get prescribed Viagra? These kinds of questions, they span everything from, you know, how we bring people into the hospital, emergencies, um, you know, you're really kind of like a Donald Redelmeyer kind of thinking really broad about, um, you know, you really are like a Freakonomics MD, thinking very broad about the way society and medicine interact and all these kinds of quirky policy questions. Yeah, I mean, I think if I think about <laughs> the one person in medicine who's really kind of pioneered this way of, of work, it'd probably be Donald Redelmeyer. So you could call me Darshik Redelmeyer. Does that work? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're too many Indian jokes. I don't know what the audience is here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They have to. But like you know, but... the the Viagra STD study. It's a it, there's a is a, a nice story about that. And I think a, a useful point that comes out. Of well, it. this is a G-rated I, podcast, though. I just want you. This, to... <laughs> oh, it is. Okay, all right, all right. So I I had an idea uh -huh. when I was sitting in the library. I think the paper <clears> came out in my intern year um, at MGH. But I, I started working on the paper and I had the idea sometime in the last couple of years of medical school. I and I was sitting in the Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago. Um, and like any good medical student who should have been studying, I was looking at, at Google or back, you know, back then it might have been Alta Vista or something like that. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, you know, you know, most most people who are uh, who I interact with now, they read things like The New York Times and, and The Washington Post, both very good places to get information. But at that time and, and, and still to this day. I would always read things like People and Yahoo News, um, news outlets. That the hard-hitting stuff. Yeah. The hard-hitting stuff. That's <laughs> the, hard the tough stuff. questions yeah. that we wouldn't know the answers to. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I remember seeing something about like STDs going up in the elderly, which was, which was true. That wasn't <clears> fake news. That was actually true. The STDs were going up in older Americans at that time. Oh, and then and like Viagra a couple had, yeah, uh, uh -huh. And then a couple of clickbait articles later, there's something about Viagra. And I just put two of those things in my mind. I was like, wait, if STDs are going up in the elderly, could it be that this new drug that was, I think it was like 1996 or something. I don't remember exactly, but a yeah, um, long time ago. Could that be, could that explain why we were seeing these increases in STDs among the elderly? And so that was what the paper was essentially trying to study. Uh, but it came out of kind of not reading the New England Journal of Medicine or the New York Times, places that most people... Uh, in our field, probably look for information, uh, but I look to other places, and I continue to look to other places for for ideas. You know, I never would have guessed you had that idea in a library, but <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the other thing you're saying that I felt I have to mention, you know, we were joking about the cardiologist thing, but for years when I was at OHSU, um, you know, I, um, I, 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 I would sit on the wards and I'd sit there at like the nursing station and like three times, I think somebody came up to me and was like, oh, hey, would you mind helping with this? Would you read this for me? And they handed me an EKG and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm happy to read this. And I feel like I'm like, you know, I think, and then I was like, I'm ha you know, cause I, you know, you know, I took a very big interest in EKG reading. So yeah, I was really yeah. into it. It. But then I was like, wait, I just, I just want to stop you for a second. You do know I'm, I'm the hemonk attending, right? And they're like, oh, you're the hemonk attending. I was like, why would you think otherwise? Why would you yeah. think I was? <laughs> well, um, all right. So back to this, this was, um, yeah. So you're a resident. So you decide, I mean, it's a natural thing and it allow you to keep a broad focus. So you've been on the faculty now since what, 2012, you've been on the faculty, almost yeah, 10 years. Yeah. Almost 10 years. Yeah. Almost 10 yeah. years. Yeah. So what you're, 
at Harvard, that means you're probably assistant professor level two or something. Yeah, no, <laughs> no I, 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 I've been blessed. I've been blessed. Um, I started as assistant professor right out of, um, right out of residency. Um, uh, you know, I didn't actually even go on the uh, formal job market. I don't know how much you know you about didn't. No, I the didn't. econ job market, but <clears throat> most people who have PhDs in economics um, who are trying to apply to an economics department, public policy school, whatever, uh, there's a formalized and centralized process for um, for applying for these jobs. People travel to the American Economic Association meetings, they interview with programs that they've applied to, and the programs that want to interview them. Interview them. They sometimes do interviews in like hotel rooms, so it's, it's a little bit a strange setup. Sketchy. I think um, I saw something. But I didn't, I didn't go through that, that process. Um, I, I I remember getting an email in during my intern year from one of uh, one of my. Uh, colleagues here um at, at harvard and he said this department is uh i'm on the search committee for this department and they're um you know looking to hire someone would you be interested and so i said sure so i, I gave a job talk in the department and things went well <laughs> but it was still two and a half years before i actually was going to be done with my uh wow. training uh and they held the job for me and it was it was terrific um so i i was really really blessed to be able to to, to join that that department and and, um, you know, I've enjoyed it ever since. So I, I, there are probably plenty of Harvard stories. Mine, mine is a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. I worked at Harvard <laughs> for 35 years and I only published a thousand articles and I, they called me assistant professor. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good story. And I think for once, well, not for once, but I think it's an example of Harvard being quite wise because, you know, you probably were a hot commodity. Well, you still are, but you were a hot commodity on the job market back then. They probably would have loved to have you back at University of Chicago um, where you trained and probably maybe some places on the West Coast would have liked to gobble you up. Because as you say yourself, um, how many healthcare, how many doctor economists are there? You, I think you said in one of your podcasts I was listening to. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on how you define economists. Like if you define economists by having a PhD in, in economics, economics yeah. it's probably maybe 10 to 15, maybe, maybe more, something. But then in like less than 100 for sure. So right. it's a small group of people. If you define a health economist more broadly to include people who have PhDs in health policy and focus in economics, which they, they do things that are very similar, if not more economics oriented than I do, then that number probably doubles. But still, like we're talking about cumulatively less than 100 people, I think, less, probably less than 50 people with this sort of training who work on these types of questions at the intersection of medicine and economics who also have medical training. I see. I think that's right. You know, I think um, there are a lot of people who play in the sandbox. I mean, even I put a toe in it too. Um, but uh, to have the is that why you got gangrene? You got <laughs> <laughs> that's why I got gout. No, yeah, right. yeah exactly both. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your papers. I guess that's the next place to go. Um, or should we let's talk about the podcast? Then we'll come to the papers. Yeah, I right. have a few of your papers that I want to run through with you. But let's talk about the podcast. So you're hosting, I guess, because this is a promotion. You're hosting. Um, sponsored by Freakonomics. I know it's not, uh, yeah. but uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, we should mention your podcast. Um, you're, you're hosting Freakonomics MD and that must be, I'm curious what kind of experience that is for you. You, you weren't a podcaster before. Um, I know, uh, you know, when I visited you like a year pre COVID, you didn't have that microphone. Uh, no. you know, uh, right. <laughs> so you weren't a podcaster before you're an academic, you're writing your papers. Um, uh, and you got dragged into this, you got drawn into this. So I guess, how did you end up doing this? And, and, and now what, you must be 15 episodes in 10 episodes. How, how's it going? Yeah, I think, I think we're about 10 episodes in something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I've always loved what the Freakonomics, um, podcast and the, in the series of books has been about, <clears> because it, it really is in, in my mind, what, what 
is most interesting to me. And, it, and that's not true for everybody, but uh, it's, it's the aspects of medicine that are, are aspects of economics that are most interesting to me. It's kind of the big data, thinking about economic issues, but really with a clever and creative lens. Um, and that's basically what I do in medicine. I mean, I, I work with big data. I apply the tools of economics like natural experiments. Um, and most of the questions that I ask are, are pretty simple, but there's like a spark of cleverness or creativity about them. And there's also a general interest that, so, you know, if I spoke to someone who uh, had no background in medicine or economics, they would understand. I mean, I, I even talked to my daughter who's six years old and, and she gets it. In, in fact, she almost says, well, why would you, well, daddy, why would you, who cares if people die? <laughs> she's a reviewer too. <laughs> she's a reviewer too. And three. <laughs> the, um, so, you know, I was attracted to the idea. The second thing um, was that, you know, and you probably experienced this a lot as well, is that, you know, when you write a lot of papers over time, there's things that are different that you want to do. I mean, how many papers do you, you know, do you want to write? I talked to my dad, who's an academic. And he'll just say, you just got to keep on writing papers. And I like writing papers. And But if, if I write a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, there's going to be people who read it. But they're mostly going to be involved in the field of medicine. Maybe if it's picked up by a, a news outlet, some other people would read it. Um, the nice thing about uh, hosting a podcast like Freakonomics MD is that I have the ability to talk to people about the way, the kind of the aspects of economics and medicine that I've always found the most interesting. And I think that other people... Uh, find interesting uh, and would find interesting if they if they knew more about it. And so it gives you a platform to be able to talk about these issues that um, I think are really interesting. I mean, there's tons of people who work in, in medicine and economics, and there's like serious questions that are, are being studied. Some of the stuff that I talk about in the show is going to be serious. Some of it's just going to be kind of flat out clever and, and different. Um, so I aim to have a little bit of both on the show. Yeah, I've been enjoying the episodes and they are, uh, you know, well-produced Freakonomics kind of network kind of produced shows. Um, they're tight. They're, 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 they're like something you listen to on the radio. Uh, they're not like what, what I'm about to put out on this podcast, which is just oh, like you know, this uncut, <laughs> uncut audio for like 90 minutes. Um, but I want to echo a couple of things you said, which is that I think, and this is something that I don't know, you know, people in different stages will may not feel the same way you and I feel, but when you publish I don't know, a couple hundred articles. You're like, well, how many more articles? You know, um, there's only so much you can do. And you find that like articles are always, you know, one topic or the other topic. Even if you get really passionate about an issue, you drop like 10 articles on that issue over the course of like five, six years or something like that. Um, you know, there's only so many people you reach. A lot of people just read one. They don't read the body of work. They don't really see it all. And I started to, you know, realize that like there's a limit to it. And it's also kind of limit. It's kind of after a while, it kind of gets a little bit boring. And so then I started doing this podcast in 2018 and it really opened a lot of doors in the sense that there are a lot of people who don't want to read. And so if you like tell it to them in their ear, when they drive in, they're going to listen. And, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I've gotten the response on this side of the pond. Um, but when I go to Western Europe, I think a lot of people like it clicks and they like the podcast. And so it's been gratifying. And I think you're very soon, if not already going to find that, like you just reach an audience you don't otherwise reach. Yeah. 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 And, it, and, you know, we, and we get emails, like really interesting ideas from, um, um, uh, from people about like, you know, for example, the Friday effect podcast uh, episode that we had last week or two weeks ago um, that came from a listener. I, I wasn't aware of that study. And uh, someone wrote in and said, <laughs> I think you should cover this article in management science about the Friday effect, which is basically uh, this finding um, 
that when the FDA issues safety alerts on a Friday, right. they attract less attention uh, than if they release those alerts on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, right. just because the news cycle is slower yeah. on Fridays and people aren't checking Twitter as much as they might be on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. And then that information propagates less to the medical community. It's picked up less by, again, doctors and patients. And the the reduction in drug use that we yeah, might expect from patterns, that sort of warning, yeah. the prescribed patterns don't change as much. Wow. And that was from a, from a listener. And then, like, you know, so we, we did a show on it. Um, but even if we didn't do a show on it, I would have still gotten some information from someone that I hadn't I'd known before. So there's a lot of ways, I think, in which it's um, it's fulfilling. And that's fascinating. I mean, that's a, that's just a classic rule of PR, where if you want to bury a story, you put it out at 5 p.m. Friday the lo- before a long weekend, and you just crushed it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think, isn't that when they put out like boosters come in September 20th, boom, show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 or exactly. that we're decided not to, we have to roll back that. Um, uh, yeah, when you want to bury some news. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I mean, you get emails and you get such things, so that's good. Okay, um, now let's talk about some of the papers. Um, I don't know, I'm trying to think. Uh, which ones are you actually most famous for? I took a look at something. I took a look at your Google Scholar and I was sorting your papers by citations. Obviously, uh-huh. I think the paper, you're, obviously your, your, your single best paper or in terms of citations um, is your malpractice risk by physician specialty. Hey, Bapu, yeah. you're two away. You're 998. You're two away from uh, the benchmark, the thousand sites for one paper. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. I think I get no, note to self, self-cite. Self-cite. Journal malpractice hey, as I article. say, Bapu, if it weren't for self-cites, I get no sites at all. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a fun yeah, paper. You know, that. That, that was probably the beginning of, of, of my own transition from more kind of traditional economics work to this sort of um, uh, work of this like Freakonomics and Meta type, type stuff. Um, because like during my PhD, and you probably know this, during my PhD and the years after, I did a lot much, a, a lot more work thinking about the economics of medical innovation and um, pharmaceutical markets, and I've continued to do some of that work now, but to much, much more limited extent. But that's how I started. But that that New England Journal Malpractice paper was kind of my first foray into talking about an issue that was really of general interest to the medical community, and we had this really interesting data, and essentially showed that across the course of a physician's lifetime, if they were in a high risk specialty like neurosurgery, for example, the likelihood of being sued at least once was was basically 100%. And that was kind of a a huge take-home finding from that paper. Yeah, I remember there's sort of like this cumulative incidence curve of probability of being sued in your specialty and like neurosurgery, OB-GYN were really high. Um, It's sobering. I mean, I think the reason it's so sobering is that, um, you know, um, I think there, I mean, I want to say, I think there are a few bad, I mean, obviously there like in any distribution, there's a few bad apples in medicine. And if anything, we probably do a very bad job of identifying those bad clinical apples and getting rid of them. I think that's a, that's a failure of medicine at the same time. I think the vast majority of doctors are well-motivated to try to do the right thing. They're good people. They're doing the best they can. Um, and I think that, um, occasionally things go bad. Occasionally it was their fault. Occasionally they could have done a better job in retrospect or at the, sorry, knowing what they knew at the time, but often things go bad there's nothing you could have done about it. Often they made a mistake, but things went well anyway. Often knowing what you knew at the time, you would have done it a thousand times over again. Um, You know, it's murky. It's very tricky. But malpractice is not like that in the sense that if you are dinged in a litigation or complaint or a suit, um, you know, it feels like the world is falling in on you. And I think it's going to feel terrible. Um, It's going to incur costs. You could talk about that. Um, It's something you want to avoid. 
Um, and, and then my reading of the literature is like, if you really want to avoid it, the things you should be doing are actually, it's like more bedside manner stuff, making sure people are happy. It's not necessarily the competence of what you're actually doing. Yeah. It just shows you that this is a system that doesn't actually encourage, I think, better medical practice. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think at a high level, I think one, one major issue, I mean, there's a lot of issues with the malpractice system ranging from, uh, um, the finding from the Harvard malpractice study that, um, uh, adverse events are often not uh, brought into the malpractice um, um, process. I mean, they're just like no one, no one actually files suits on those. And then there's um, um, issues where suits um, uh, are brought that don't have an error that probably occurred. So this is, we call these errors of omission and, and uh, commission. So that's one kind of big issue. Mm -hmm. I, the one that I think that's it's most relevant for physicians though, is that the process is, is by nature very adversarial. And I don't know that it needs to be that way. I mean, mistakes will happen uh, in, in medicine. It's hard to avoid them and mistakes will happen because of system level factors and mistakes may happen because of individual uh, uh, factors. That doesn't mean that the physician had a wrong intent or that the physician wasn't a high quality, um, um, uh, but these things happen. But the nature of the malpractice process is very adversarial. I mean, the physicians who are engaged in that uh, malpractice uh, litigation are going to feel like someone thinks I'm a bad doctor. And that is sometimes what, what will lead to malpractice. But by and large, that is not what causes malpractice events to occur uh, or errors to occur. And that's, a, that's a, I think, a big issue. And that's why physicians are fearful of it. And, and um, they're fearful of it because they fear uh, what it means for them and uh, what people will think about them. And, and I think that's not, it's not something that they should be thinking about. That's interesting. I think it was, um, you know, an important paper. And I know for years after you kind of did a circuit, you're like talking, people ask you to talk about this a lot. Um, but there's so many other papers I want to talk about. Let's talk about your seventh most cited paper, pre-specified falsification analysis. Oh, that's a classic. Oh, you got to tell uh, that's our paper. <laughs> <laughs> that's our paper. I remember where I was. I was a, the, here's my side of the story. I was a fellow at uh, NIH because uh, I was a fellow the years you were an early faculty member. And I think you called me one day and I think I was on call. I, I was in the hospital too. I, I remember in being in the you hospital. You were working yeah. too. And uh, you called me and you're that's like, That's what happens hey. when you work all the time. It's just you know, the, <laughs> the probabilities are... <laughs> Well, you could talk about that at some point, work-life balance and how you do it now. But um, okay, so you called me and you're like, I have this idea. And you kind of sketched out this idea that, you know, um, uh, it, it's easy to think randomized trials are always great and observational studies are always crap. But the problem is some observational studies are really good and some randomized trials are crap. And, you know, I'm spending a lot of time trying to point out randomized trials that are limited and flawed. And you're spending a lot of time trying to do credible observational studies. And one of the things that people don't miss or people don't appreciate is that there's some tools in economics that are really good at making causal inference from observational studies. One of those tools is pre-specified falsification analyses. Like you're going to say, this is not associated with this. We just know that to be true, but let's look in the data set. And if we find a spurious association, it might make us worry that there's some other spurious associations that are being linked. And, you know, had several, there was a, at that time, there's just like a couple of really good publications on this. You'll have to remind me, I think you did one of them on, bisph on bisphosphonates maybe. Oh, no, um, no. P uh, PPIs PPI. and pneumonia. That's yeah. right. You did one there. Okay, so we'll talk about that. And then I think uh, you had given me enough and I was thinking about it. And then I drafted something, sent it to you. And I think we did this commentary in like one, two days. Yeah, at day. most. Yeah. At most. Yeah. yeah. And, and then we sent, sent it to JAMA. And, yeah. and they took it. Which is shocking. Yes. Is shocking. So basically yeah. we had like a JAMA paper with like 24 hours of work. Yeah, exactly. Which, all right, so you which, talk about <laughs> it. That's all I remember. Well, yeah, no, that's that's exactly how I remember. I, I remember, uh, I remember, 
that process. And I remember being, cause I, so this was when I was, um, I, I think I was just a junior faculty at that point, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, um, when was that paper published? That was in, I think 2013, like, 2014. Yeah. So I had just, I had just started a junior faculty and, um, and I was used to work o- overnights on Thursday night. And, uh, and so probably I was speaking to you on Thursday night yeah. and I remember the following week or something like that, I was in the office called it post call. Uh, and I got this email from the then editor at, at JAMA saying, you know, we like the piece where we, you know, make these changes. And I went into the, my colleague's room and I said, this, this is like shocking. Like we literally spent, uh, you know, a few hours writing this up. Um, uh, and that by itself is not what's shocking. It's like, you know, the content also is not what you typically expect to see for a, right. Uh, a jam of viewpoint, but um, yeah, that's a good piece. I mean, it, it's just a, like a general discussion about observational research and medicine. I mean, as you as you know, and and certainly I I know the quality of it is is it's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, in medicine, it it leaves a bad impression in the minds of students and I think doctors who are kind of incredulous when it comes to observational work. Um, it it kind of I think carries over to the field of economics. Like in economics, we do a lot of what I would consider to be causal work using observational data. I mean, the Nobel Prize this year was given right. for, for right. methods uh, in, 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 that, in that realm. Um, but like, you know, I talked to a lot of doctors like, oh yeah, you can, that's not called correlation, it's not causation. Whatever the phrases that they teach you in medical school, which is like, it's useful, but it's also completely useless um, uh, <laughs> if you don't know what, the, what, what, you know, what a study is, is doing. And so part of what I've done with this sort of natural experiment work in medicine is just try to say, look, if you think creatively, and think rigorously about the question, there are ways you can answer these questions in causal ways. You know, I think one of the points you're making that's pretty astute is that um, some people do a good job of it, but there's so many people doing a bad job of it. It gives like the whole thing a bad name. And one of the things you said earlier was, you know, you imagine if you'd specialize in like say cardiothoracic surgery, you'd be doing these kind of retrospective chart reviews of some, I don't know, some way they do some procedure or something in CT surgery. And I think one of the challenges is if you look in biomedicine of all the things like a doctor faces, if you're a urologist or a hemonc doctor or a CT surgeon, like hemonc doctors are looking at the literature and there's so many questions that there's no randomized data. And so they're looking for some other type of data. And there is some observational study that makes some comparison historical or whatever quasi-experimental propensity score but the person doing it has like never done that type of work before you know they're not trained in it they don't think causally they don't think about natural experiments they're just doing like i have stayed up put they're just running the analysis and that obviously is going to have low credibility and so then if i'm immersed in whatever hemonc or ct surgery and i just see one after the other observational studies that contradict each other that have you know inconsistent point estimates you know unbelievable point estimates then i come to think that everything in this space is uh, useless. Uh, mm-hmm. and even when like some very clever people do a really nice job. No, I, I would agree. And, and the question is, is, you know, who to blame? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, does it, is this a problem at the medical school level? Is this a problem at the journal level? I mean, the journals, they can make decisions about whether or not to take papers or not. And, um, some of the very best journals don't typically take a lot of observational work, um, but some of them do. And, and you look at them like, wow, what you know? What are the what are they trying to say here? Um, uh, uh, and and I know this is someone who sends them a bunch of causal stuff. Yeah. And they come back to me and they say, delete uh, you know, yeah, we delete this language, or they'll say, you know, we don't think it's causal because of X, Y, and Z. All right, fine, I believe that. But then, why in the world did you just publish the association <laughs> between drinking coffee and cancer? Because it's clearly not causal, right? Right. Um, 
Uh, and then you know this also comes up in in um, in in um, in journalism and in what you read in the news. Like I've often seen people criticize journalists and and um, reporters for saying, well, "Why would you write a story about the effects of coffee or the association between coffee and some outcome, and act as if it's causal?" I'm like, that's not that's not their you know weight to their water to bear. It's not their fault. I mean, they're reporting what a prestigious medical journal is publishing. It's on the journal. It's on the people who are writing it. It's not on the, the press to be able to uh, parse out what is causal versus not. I mean, maybe some training could be helpful and they can be part of the solution, but that's certainly not where I would be looking for, for, for blame. I think it starts in the training process. It probably goes a little bit into the journals for sure. That's really interesting. And I agree with you. It's often they're just like, you know, they're churning the press release. And so, of course, it has a lot of causal language in it. But one thought I have is this. Each year we train like, I don't know, a, a mini army of like PhD, epidemiology, public policy, uh, you know, the, the fields that kind of have some sense of doing this kind of research, how to think through it, how to think of counter, counterfactuals and that kind of stuff. And we have them and, you know, there's not enough faculty positions for them. And so they often get pushed to different sectors or whatever. Meanwhile, there's so many clinical questions in medicine in the transplant surgery department, CT surgery, neurology and ortho, uh, but they don't want to take this person and move him into their department and train him into like the, the, the content knowledge of like, what do we do in ortho? We, we bang on it with this drill and you know, all this stuff. And like, these are the questions that interest us, but you know, the methods, we know the questions you, you know, we'll pay you, you come to our department. There's a few of those people, but very few and far between. And instead these people left out on their own. What do they think about blue tea, uh, you know, green tea, um, blueberries, uh, 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 exercise. I mean, I, there's mm -hmm. like just an army of people thinking about like the, the same questions. I was like, listen, take your skill set and forget about blueberries. Never even think about another blueberry. <laughs> Put that blueberry in the trash and forget about it. Don't even think about stone fruit. I know they're not sexy, but don't think about stone fruit either. <laughs> Come over to ortho and let me point out these different knees, okay? And then like spend a little time observing. How are they giving these knees out? What are the varieties of knees? Are there any potential biases in terms of rich people getting certain knees and and and, and people with less uh, getting le different type of knees? And start to answer like, can, is there a way to kind of tease out? Is there a natural experiment here of which knee is the best knee? You know, use your skill set, but think about knees. Um, I think that's that's like a, that's like a, a matchmaker that needs to happen. Yeah, I think, and I think the the reason why you know why don't we see that? Right, there's probably a business case for it. I mean, ortho for you just talk about ortho departments are typically quite uh, well endowed. They've got money, um, so this is certainly something that's feasible. Uh, I remember I wrote a piece um, about like natural experiments, and and the the person who the editor who asked me to write the piece, I forget where it was. They said, well, can you give some practical tips for how these sort of tools? Uh, can be used and how researchers in clinical departments can do this. And I said, well, one is just use some of that surplus of money that you have to hire someone who does this kind of work, because you, you shouldn't expect doctors who are clinically oriented to be able to, to use these methods. Eventually, I think that they, you know, they probably would be able to with the right training. Um, but I, I completely agree with you there. I mean, there is this nexus that has not formed. And as a result, we have a series of of poorly done observation studies across all disciplines of medicine um, that don't tell us much about what we need to know. You know, I want to talk about your um, marathons paper, but first I wanted you to say this point that we've talked about so many times, which I know you're like one of the few people who agree with me. Um, if, if you get a trainee 
And they want to be like, you know, they're like, I want to have a good research career. And like, what should I learn? They always ask me like, what book should I read? What stats software should I learn? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you forget about the books, my friend, except for, except for ending medical reversal and malignant. Don't forget about yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> those are the best books. Are those, are those Amazon bestsellers yet? <laughs> well, you know, they're like bestseller. You know how they like the number one bestseller in like hematology books read by recluses. It's like some subcategory <laughs> exactly, yeah, and it's exactly, like number yeah. one in recluse reading hematology. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, they always want books. What books to read? What are these things? I was like, no, it's not that about that what you need to learn is how to have a good idea can you talk about that bapu i mean oh of all, i could talk for hours of, yes. no okay let's hear it so i mean I, I i as you do and i'm sure many people do I, I get a lot of emails from um students who will who will have read uh, a paper and say you know i'd you know love to work with you and most of the time i work with graduate students or full-time ras research assistants who are kind of knee deep in the methods that are that are behind the research. I mean, most of the questions I ask are pretty intuitive. Uh, it's not it doesn't take rocket science to understand the question. Uh, um, it doesn't even require any special training to understand the different sorts of additional analyses uh, that I might do around a question. But it does take some sophistication to be able to understand how to work with the data and to do the underlying econometrics or statistics that support all the kind of the high level questions and approaches that, that um, we're answering and that we're, that we're taking. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very specialized, a group of the set of skills that are required to do this, but students will say, you know, well, I, you know, I want to work, I just want to be on a project that you're on. And you see that, I mean, you see this in medical school, right? We saw this in residency, um, faculty members would suggest questions to students. And, you know, my general thing is like, at least some of the time, if a faculty member is suggesting a question to a student, you should maybe wonder why they're suggesting that question to the student uh, because they didn't want to do it themselves. That's kind of my general view. So there is a selection, a kind of an adverse selection uh, going on here. So what I tell the students is, look, I'm happy to spend time with you, but let's spend time in a different way. I want you to come up with 10 questions every week or every two weeks, wherever, and don't do like a literature review on them. Just like literally send me a question. And the question could be, um, you know, do people have higher rates of heart attacks? during marathons because the roads are closed. If they just sent me that stem, that question, I'd be able to say, interesting, not interesting. We should look into this further. Um, and with my own group of students who I work with and, and, and um, RAs, you know, we meet probably two or three times a week. We're doing it much more now because um, you know, we have the capabilities with Zoom and stuff. Um, um, but we, you know, we meet a few times a week. And the first question I'll start out with is, all right, who has some ideas? And we'll just throw out ideas and I'll throw out ideas. and. Um, most of them will be bad and that's, that's fine. Like most of my own ideas would be bad, but you just need to have a couple of good ideas, but I don't think that students appreciate that. And, um, you know, when we train students in either economics or medicine, we, we train them about the methods. How do you program an R or state or SAS? What are the econometrics that you need to know? What are the seminal papers in XYZ issue? We don't have a course that says, how do you come up with good ideas? Right. Um, and that I think is a, is a disservice that we do because there is this untapped creativity um, in really smart people um, who we should be tapping into. It's almost like, you know, if you talk to a, a kid, you know, my daughter's six years old, she's, you know, and I think many six-year-olds, if you talk to them, they would seem to be very creative. The ideas that they have for how much experience they have on this earth are disproportionate compared to what you would expect or what I see in, in adults. And there's something about that kind of inquisitiveness, not knowing all the answers and just kind of asking questions uh, over and over again, which is probably something that young kids do, 
which you know I wish we could replicate and until in life who are grinds trying. it out of you, life exactly. grinds it out of you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's such a wise. I mean, all those are wise observations. I agree. I agree with your core premise more than anything. I've always been saying it. I tried at the institutions I've worked at to create what I call a class called a research Shark Tank, where basically people will come and say their ideas, and and somebody maybe not me, but somebody I'll bring in like a group of three people who are good at this kind of stuff to say, no, not good, not good, not good. I think one thing you'll have to appreciate one is that like 97 out of a hundred are not good. Don't take that yeah, to heart. Yeah. You know, don't, no, don't, yeah. don't feel hurt by that. I mean, my idea is 97 out of a hundred are not good either. Um, but that's part of the process, but there's something else I was thinking about saying. It's like, I don't know. Um, we get really good at a certain type of writing, and that is um, academic paper writing. I think, you know, you and I can write, write, an, write, an, I can write an academic paper in my sleep. Uh, you know, I can literally sit down and write like a full 3,000 word original article in, I don't know, an hour, you know, maybe an hour and a half. Um, but there are other types of writing, op ed writing. It's a different kind of skill set. And before you get good at op ed writing, you got to try writing a few op eds. And then there's a different type of writing, creative writing, fiction writing. I think that's very difficult. I don't practice as much as I once upon a time did. Um, but that unlocks a different kind of way of thinking. Um, and thinking about ideas is the same thing. You have to like put yourself in this mental framework where you're always like, huh, you're on rounds and you're like, huh, look at this happening. Look at that happening. I wonder about this. I wonder about that. And you have to like let your mind t like be like a child and just entertain all these questions. And then you're like, and then you're like, and then, then the first thing you filter is like, oh, um, is that interesting? Is that interesting? And a lot of the questions like, yeah, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. But then you're like, oh, is there any available data that allow you to shed clarity on that? And you're like, nope, 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 Proprietary, proprietary, secret, secret, secret. No, 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 no. And then finally, like, yes. And you're like, ah, oh, that's the question, you know, right? So like, that yeah, kind of I mean, like, I, I mean, I'm, I think about like our, I call them idea sessions. I don't know, you know, if you're to look at all the papers I've written, how many of them originate from a quote unquote idea session. Mm -hmm. But I believe that there's a causal effect of those sessions because mm -hmm. uh, by kind of training your brain to think about the world in this way, when something presents itself to you serendipitously, you, you kind of you know, absorb it in a way that you would otherwise. Uh, it's like exercise for the, for the event. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's like, I, I've always said like, you know, why is it that we think that we can, you know, we can train a human being to transplant a heart from one body to another, but we can't train people or teach people to be more creative, but we don't even bother. I mean, like, I'll give you another a data point, which is I suggest this to students often. Um, and, you know, some students, take me up on it, but most actually don't. I think maybe some people view it as, as me saying no. And which, which, what I'm saying is actually the most that I could do for you, in my opinion, is to help you think like this. Right. Uh, but if you were to offer a student a paper and say, you can be an author on this paper, just do the Lord, then, you know, then you'll get an immediate response. And so there is a, there's a culture problem here where we value outputs, which are papers. And that's why we have a lot of crappy papers. There's a lot of people who write a lot of papers, many numbers of papers, and they could be not very good. Um, we don't value that process of developing um, kind of the art of thinking about ideas and coming up with ideas uh, and because there's no measurable output for some period of time. I think that's really well put. Let me pause one second. So I agree with everything that you said. Uh, we don't teach people to have ideas. And in fact, that's kind of what kind of pushes them away sometimes because they need a product. And that's a, that's a big problem. Um, but I do think it's the most important thing. And I sometimes think like my goal with working with people is so that they can start to think of these things themselves, um, you know, in, in their future careers and lives. Um, but I do think it needs to be explicitly taught and it's probably the most useful thing. Um, and we obsess about like, I don't know, it's also an arms race. Like when we trained, 
you didn't have to have any publications to go into IM residency. Now, I think, what are they averaging? Four publications or something. Um, so it just keeps getting higher and higher. I want so you to walk. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, there's a related discussion about um, about the role of expertise. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. So oh, you know, yeah. this has become super relevant during the pandemic. And I'll just frame it as a fine. There's a lot of people, particularly on social media, who don't have the quote unquote training in public health um, that you might expect for people who are opining about a lot of issues related to um, the pandemic. Um, and sometimes I'll see like people raise red flags about that. Like, oh, why is this person who is, a, you know, I don't know, a mathematician or a sociologist or electrical engineer or a physicist, whatever, um, or a, medicine, a you know, physician who has no infectious disease training or quote unquote public health training? Why are they you know, weighing in on issues related to um, epidemiology and stuff like that? And I was, as I was driving here from soccer, as to per our work-life balance discussion, um, I was thinking, I was like, you know, how do I think about this issue of expertise? Because yeah. it's very relevant to this question of like, you know, what do people bring to the table? And my thought was like, I don't actually think that, I think expertise matters when the person who is receiving the information has no expertise. So I mean the following, like if I, am asking someone on issues related to climate science or, you know, the evolution of planets. I know nothing about this. I probably are going to feel more comfortable getting that information from a physicist or a scientist who works in those areas, as opposed to, um, um, you know, a scholar of 17th century Romanian literature. Right. <laughs> right. But, but suppose that I had some expertise in those issues and this scholar of 17th century Romanian literature said, oh, Bob, well, I've got this random idea. What do you think about this? Like, I would then have the ability to understand whether or not there's merit in what they're saying, even though they have no training whatsoever uh, in that issue. And so I, I get a little bit perplexed about these yeah. discussions because I know you work with people who have written about issues on the pandemic with people who are not formally trained in these yeah. issues. And I see people criticize it. And I wonder, like, but they actually have, like you as someone who's reading it or me, has the ability to understand the arguments and address them on their face, right? As opposed to addressing what are the quote unquote qualifications of person that only makes sense if you have no ability to engage in that discussion in the first place. And that's a thoughtful you way know, of thinking which I think about is it. Fine. Yeah, and that's a thoughtful way. Of, I haven't I haven't heard that, but I think that there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, which is when you can independently appraise the validity of something, such as things in our wheelhouse, which are biomedicine. Uh, you, you can just use one. I'll take a practical example: vaccine myocarditis, right? So, like, we're used to giving drug products. We're used to thinking about rare adverse events. In fact, one of the I think the theses of our pre-specified falsification thing was this is a useful thing for rare adverse events because you can't yeah. always get that in RCT. Um, so we're, we're, we played in that, that sandbox for a long time. So then I bring in, I find this guy, Wes Pegden, who did a model where he kind of models a one-dose strategy with a CDC didn't do. And we pulled that into this op-ed we had written with the, you know, PEDS ID person and Vink Morthy is a cardiologist and all this thing. Um, and, and so I can say like, look, I, I, I can tell that he's done this right because I know a little bit about this kind of stuff. Um, so that's one way, you know, although he may not have domain expertise on vaccines, he's a mathematician uh, and he did this thing right. And I have domain expertise enough to know that it's right. So I think you're onto something versus climate change. I don't, what do I know about it? I don't know anything about it. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to evaluate any of the claims because I, I don't keep up with it. Can't read all yeah. those papers. Yeah. I see them from time <laughs> to time, but I just I go the other way. I go the other way. I was like, you know, I can't read about everything. Uh, okay. So I can't, you know, so then I, like you say, like if I have somebody want to tell me about it, 
I guess first I'd have to be willing to want to listen to it for how, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think it's important. We got to do something about it, but you know, I, what do I need to, I, I don't need to know all the details, you know, you got to solve it. And, and this comes up in economics all the time, yes. by the way. And I, I, this is what economists get a, um, uh, I think bad a rap. bad rap for yeah. this because we, we, as a field, along with some other fields, we, we really go, go outside of the, the, the realm of traditional economics. I mean, you might have economists who are working on issues related to uh, climate science, or, you know, you could have an economist who would have a really clever way of studying a, a clinical question using a natural experiment, like a drug shortage or something like that. Um, uh, you know, I'll give, I think I one example, you remember, I think you and I both went to this seminar by Levitt many years ago, but Levitt was trying to look at ER doctors and he was really interested, Stephen Levitt, the Freakonomics guy, yeah. uh, he was really interested in the question of like, are some ER doctors better than other ER doctors? And uh, it turns out that ER doctors have, you know, different places they work in different shifts and whatever. And so they're getting a different case mix. They're seeing sort of different cases. And he couldn't really find a natural experiment where like a bunch of these ER doctors all got kind of the same cases. But what he did find was that if you ask the question in a different way and one up level up, like if an if a, if an ER doctor is on shift uh, during that time, can you link the outcome of anybody who was on the shift when they were on the shift, even if that person was not someone they explicitly cared for? And then all of a sudden yeah. there is this kind of homogeneity in, in the shift, like it, they're seeing all the same kinds of case makes over time. And so the economist is thinking like, oh, this is very clever because it is possible. There's an indirect effect. Like you and I work in an ER. You're like, hey, you know, VP, can I run something by you? Can I run this case by you? And I'm like, yeah, you can run yeah. it by me. Or, you know, maybe I help you in other ways by taking off the burden. And so the economist is thinking that that is a faithful way to know my contribution, the health of a patient that maybe Bapu cared for because we worked on the same shift, but the doctor, their mind can't even think that way. Um, you remember this? Yeah, I do remember this. Yeah, but I, I think as a, as a general point, um, you know, when economists step outside of their quote unquote wheelhouse, uh, if you will, uh, I think they can sometimes get flack. And I would just say, don't engage with the fact that the person's an economist or not engage on the, or in the arguments. If they're making that's assumptions that are incorrect, then that's a completely different issue. Um, but no, I, I get approached by people who are not in economics or medicine, and they suggest to me ideas that are relevant to the types of things that I see in economics and medicine all the time. Um, and I think that there can be great ideas. The last thing I'd say about COVID and expertise is, I mean, I guess, um, I don't know, I find myself in an unusual place because at times I think I look at what somebody's saying, I'm like, this person don't know what they're talking about. They don't have the expertise to comment, but I've also <laughs> yeah. been a victim of people saying, well, you don't have the expertise to comment. And so, so it's like cuts both ways. But I guess the more I think about it is like, it's not that they don't have the expertise or do, it's just that I just don't find their arguments credible. And I don't know, people don't always know the background about the person they're talking about. Cause they, I, I've often heard people say like, oh, Vinay Prasad is a hemonk doctor. I was like, sure. You know, I am a hemonk doctor. That's what I practice. Uh, but you do know that like, you know, maybe 150 of our papers are like general internal medicine papers and a subset are, are infectious disease. And a couple of years ago, we wrote that paper about PPD testing hospital workers and the evidence base for that. And we concluded that like in places of low prevalence, it doesn't make sense to do latent TB yeah. testing of hospital workers. And then literally one month later, the CDC changed their policy uh, because they had a concurrent evidence review that reached the same conclusion. And so like my expertise is evidence review. So of course, when people make strong claims that some things work really well, and we have great data, of course, it's going to incite my passions because I'm really interested in those yeah. kinds of claims. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'll be drawn to it like a moth to the flame. Um, so, you know, and then, the, then I also heard that he's not an epidemiologist and I was like, yeah, you know, but I am actually in the department of epidemiology yeah. <laughs> is an unusual, <laughs> unusual claim, but okay. Is that true by the way, that moths are drawn to flames? Because I mean, I, 
<laughs> I think I'll tell you, we, we light up flames outside and I see the mosquitoes seem to come to me. I know moss aren't the same thing as mosquitoes, uh, but they don't they don't go the flame. They come. Well, to me. OK, something I don't have domain. But my understanding was <laughs> that the reason they're tricked by flames and they always fly in a circle around it with, uh, is because um, they, they anchor to the light source and they think it must be like the moon. And that's how like in the in the prehistoric times, there was no artificial light source. So they see the moon and they always fly at some angle to that to that fixed point in the sky. But now that it's actually like a, it's like in your hand, they don't know what to do. And so they go around and around. That's what I read in some crap. So what happens during a lunar eclipse? They're like, they're like flying. <laughs> they just drop I, down. I think, I think something, I think something happens to them. Yeah. They, they do have some problems. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, we could get, we could get a, we could get a expert in mods and come on a yeah, future plenary exactly, session. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is the expert probably would have written some article on some other topic. And so they'd be canceled. They can do any podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay, so the next thing I wanted to ask you, um, yeah, your mortality, I mean, you've talked about it so much. I don't know if people, I guess people, maybe some people here will not have listened to you say it before, but um, mortality during marathons, very clever paper. You want to talk a little bit about how you got the idea? And um, Yeah, and I, th I think yet? that's actually, it, it kind of dovetails nice with our conversation. My wife was running this race uh, a few years ago. Um, and she wanted me to watch her on the race route. And the race route happened to go by Mass General Hospital, where I work. And I had a parking spot there. Um, so I'm driving along the main thoroughfare to go to the hospital to watch her. Um, but I had to turn around because the road was blocked. And it was blocked because the race route went through that area. So I come back home. And hours later, she sees me. And I told her I couldn't see her because the road was blocked. And she says this offhand comment. She's like, well, what happened to all the people who need to get to the hospital that day? And that was just literally an offhand comment that she made. But I was like, hold on, wait, that's actually an interesting question because you know, marathon, she wasn't running a marathon. She was running like a 5K race, but a marathon would be even more disruptive um, and the roads would be blocked. And could it be the case that people who needed to get to the hospital during a marathon might not be able to get there mm -hmm. because the roads are blocked? And we saw exactly that. We saw that mortality rate for time-sensitive conditions like heart attacks and cardiac arrest. They go up on the days that a city is hosting a major marathon. Um, and we also showed that ambulance transport times go up and they go up on the day that the city's hosting marathon and they go up in the mornings or the daytime by 5 PM, the, the ambulance transport times normalize on the day that the city held a marathon, which makes sense because the roads are typically uh, opened up uh, uh, by that time. And so that was an example of a, a just an offhand comment that my wife made that if she made that to any of her friends, they'd probably be like, yeah, that's a good point. And then just moved on with their be, day. Yes. Right. But um you know, that was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I told, I told my wife, I was like, you know, you should be an author on this paper. And she's like, oh, Bapu, that doesn't meet ICMJE yeah. criteria, ICJME. I was like, well, you know, oh, I shouldn't say your name on public. But I was like, but honey, it's like, think about all the papers that you read. You think all of these authors are meeting <laughs> this criteria? It's like, you had the most important ingredient in this paper. It was the idea. None of this would have been possible without that. So how is it possible, like what criteria uh, that is reasonable would have it be the case that the single most important input um, that it's led to a, a paper right, right. is not is not like uh, sufficient to be an author on a paper? Um, ain't, ain't none of those people who are authors on most papers do anything for those papers. You, and I both know, <laughs> you know, I have to say two things I got in trouble for. You remember like, one, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I forget. And I hope nobody actually goes investigates, but it was like somebody 
somebody's retiring or something and they're like, oh, Dr. So-and-so has published, you know, they worked here for 10 years and they published a thousand papers or something. And then, or it was something is more than that. I was like, I don't know, the 1500 papers. And I just like, I was like, oh, like 15, like 150 papers a year. And I was like, dude, I was like, I write fast, but ain't no way I'm writing 150 papers a year fast, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. then I made some joke about it. Like, you know, obviously hinting that there's no possible way this person contributed meaningfully to all those papers, um, despite the volume alone. And then, oh, you know, I got, obviously I got myself in trouble on Twitter about that. Um, but it's true. The author inflation, we did a publication on it on author. Inflation. Yeah, that's right. Um, on how that people are, I mean, it's, it, it, it seems as if people are adding authors because the, the complexity of the work isn't getting any more complex, but the author list is growing. Um, yeah. and, and then the other thing I said that's reverse uh, that got me in trouble was, um, you know, if you're a student looking to have a mentor on a research project and your mentor hasn't published 10 papers, your mentor needs a mentor and you need a new mentor. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because, again, there's a lot of questions, uh, yes. at least in the field of health policy and medicine, that economists will look at and that uh, medical or health policy or health service research, research will look at. And it's very common, like in economics, it is very uncommon to have a paper with four or five authors. Many papers will probably have two authors or three authors, and it's not uncommon to have single author papers. Right. The complexity of those papers, if it's you massive. match it to a, yeah. a similar paper that's trying to ask the same question, is often much greater. Not yeah. always, but it's often much greater. But the number of authors on a medical or health policy paper is like 3x or 4x. And I see these papers like, why? I had a paper in one journal, it was a very prestigious journal. It was, we had three authors on it. Uh, a year later, someone else did something very similar in a different care setting, uh, published another journal. There's 12 authors on it. And I remember thinking to myself, what in the, like, why did you need 12 authors to get this paper done? Um, but, you know, if they said that, like, you know, there's, you know, great ideas coming from three of them, I guess, you know, back to my earlier point, yeah. it's not the time that matters. It's the, it's the contribution. So, but I guess you know. I, we all know why, I mean, a lot of it is you have to put your chair on your department chief and butter up all these colleagues. And then they get into, um, and I actually heard somebody advise this in a career session, which is called like, get, build your citation. Net, no, they didn't call it ring. I think that's the pejorative term, but build your, 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 your team. Citation and, network. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's interesting. And basically the idea was like you, like, you know, for us to get ahead in our career, you know, we, you and I become a team. So everything that my team does, we make you an author on everything your team does, you make me an author on. And so then we double our publications and they actually, somebody's actually like promoting this in a thing. And I was like, you don't know. I was like, that's not how it works. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I, it would be interesting. And it's, it's not causal, but like, let's suppose you had data on all publications and you knew who was the chair in each department that yeah. was the origin of that publication. And you looked at the the growth in career of people who oh, put the included chair the chair versus, versus the chair didn't on. include the chair. Now there's like a lot of endogeneity and selection yes, bias yes, that yes. comes in that. But um, I mean, I bet that, I bet that goes on. There's certainly some um, kind of, kind of uh, call it strategic elements of, of this, which is, you know, a little bit unfortunate. Let me talk about, and I know you have to go in about 10 minutes. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, people may not appreciate, but uh, you know, um, you're, you're I mean, I, I don't know, nobody will know this, but I know this about you, which is like, you are literally temperamentally one of the, like the most even people I've ever known, you know, in 15 years. And, um, we didn't have a chance to hash out, but you know, you and I, they're definitely topic areas that we really disagree on pharmaceutical yeah. drug policy and cost of drug and things like this. We just fundamentally disagree on. There are also a lot of topic areas. We agree on a lot. Like soccer is a beautiful sport. Um, you know, so we have the things we agree and disagree, but you know, we have like anyone. I don't know. It's not just me. 
if you met somebody who disagreed with you about everything, you would be able to have dinner with them and it would be like a great dinner. You have laughs and have a good time, right? Uh, you don't take any ideas personally. You're always very positive. Um, and yet you have also had to deal with hate. So I wonder if you might talk about the two parts. One, I don't know, why is your disposition so rosy? Uh, and, and is it cultivated? Do you actually get angry? And then the next part is what about the, the real haters that they, you know, how have you had to deal with the real haters? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's probably, uh, my, my dad is pretty low key. Um, so maybe it's, maybe it's partly from that. Um, I mean, you know, with disposition, some of it's, some of it's, um, selection bias, meaning it's kind of specific to the person. And some of it is a function of the environment. Um, I'm lucky in a lot of respects. I'm at a, I have a great job. Um, um, uh, I've got good health. So I have a lot of things that allow me to have a good disposition. Um, and I mentioned that because there's a lot of people who fall into that category, um, who don't have good dispositions. And that's always something I, you know, you know, I have kids. And, and so one thing I try to, th I think a lot about is like, you know, we, our colleagues will think about like, all right, did he send a private school? Did he send a public school? Do you do Russian math? By the way, I don't know why the you know Russians have a monopoly on math. The Indians <laughs> are quite quite good at math, but uh -huh. you know, do you do this or that? And you know, those are all like interesting things that people think about. But I I worry about like like resilience and happiness and what can what can I do? And maybe I can't do anything, but that's what I think most about, which is what is in my control so that my son and my daughter, when they are older and they are faced with adversity or or maybe something that's objectively not that adverse, but they might have some probability of thinking that it's a, it's a, an adversity that they're facing, that they're resilient. And then they realize that their, their place in life and their place in society is, is quite good. And maybe they should just step back in and relax. And so that's the way I, I think about the world. You know, sometimes, uh, I mean, I've had issues with um, people and uh, related to uh, research and, and, you know, you mentioned that we disagree on issues related to pharmaceutical yeah, pricing but, and policy. Uh -huh those issues come up and I try not to take it personal, but, um, I think life is too short. You got to be grateful and be happy for what you have. And, 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 um, I certainly am. Okay. That's a good answer. But, but to be clear, I'm not one of your haters because you know, no, you're, you're not a, I'm also like, I don't take it seriously. I mean, in the sense, like, yeah, I care about the issue, but I can separate Bapu, my friend, from like we disagree on this issue. Like, it's totally separate. Yeah, I mean, like the the, the drug pricing stuff is a great example. We, I yeah. mean, we we're like on polar opposites, total opposite right. of, of that. And you know, the one thing about you is that I like is that you know that I do do a lot of work with companies and things like that. And and when we debate issues around drug pricing or policy, you never say to me, "Oh, Bapu, you're biased because of X, Y, Z." You engage on the merits of the argument. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what we should strive for. Um, we don't see that quite often. And certainly in polarized topics like that, that, that doesn't happen. And it's, it, it, it is disappointing. One thing I'll say about resilience, which was recently I was talking to somebody younger than me. And, um, uh, you mean who was just like a year younger, 26, <laughs> 26. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only 27. Papa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's just say, yeah. Okay. So younger than me, significantly younger. Um, uh, of the different generation, uh, I, I'm willing to disclose. I'm 38 now, so it's uh, not that. I'm not that. I'm not 27. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, and so, so um, I was talking to this person, and this person was talking about uh, something that had uh, some something that had happened to some third party, uh, some some sort of professional, um, uh, you know, uh, criticism or something like that. 
And this person said to me with like a straight face that if that happened to me, I'd kill myself. I was like, Jesus Christ. I was blown away. I was blown away because um, obviously I don't want this person to kill themselves. Um, but also because in my mind of the scale of tragedies of life, um, and maybe this is like, like I, 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 I guess I, I can even be sympathetic that there would be some circumstances where one might contemplate such, go to such dark places. I can even understand like some things happen in life, your mind might go there. Maybe you want to pull yourself out of it, but your mind might go there. But this yeah. thing that had happened to this person, not even in the ballpark of that, it's so much better than that. Like, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, like in the, in the universe of things you're talking about, it's not that bad at all. It was like a mild, a mild fall from grace or, you know, mild insult to get back on the bike and keep riding. Yeah. And, but the reason I, th I point out their age was, I, th I wonder if it's generational. Like this person viewed this as like mm -hmm. a catastrophic uh, life event. And I was like, it ain't no catastrophic life event. There are catastrophic life events that's not even close. Um, and, and, and to think like that they would kill themselves over it, I thought was like really sobering. And then I was yeah, just- Yeah, it might be, it might know. be generational. I mean, I, you know, I'll give an example from my own life. Like, let's say like, you know, I've, been, I've been very blessed to have uh, a lot of papers in very good, um, good journals. But every time I have a paper rejected, it stings a little bit. And, you know, depending on one's disposition, it could sting a little bit or it could sting a lot. I mean, these are papers where you could spend months working on it. Um, and every time that happens, if I were to talk to my wife, my wife is a clinician, she does some research. She'll just be like, whatever. I mean, you got like 12 other papers in the mix and da da da. And, you've got, and, I, and, I, and it's like, that's useful for me because I'm like, wait, I got to just step back. Like it's true. Everything is relative, right? I mean, uh, you know, it's not um, like a difficulty putting food on the table. Thank goodness. Um, but it is important, I think, to have that sort of perspective when you're dealing with any sort of issue. And that may be different over generations. I mean, think about, you know, your parents or my parents' generation. When my parents yeah. came here, my dad literally had $8 in his pocket. Yeah, he grew up nothing. in a village in India where his parents couldn't read or write and he didn't have shoes till he was probably 10 years old. Uh, so his view and what it takes to shake him is different um, than it would, what it would take to shake my own son or my own daughter. Um, and I think, you know, as parents, one thing that we can try to do is to try to just build that. And, and I, and I, if there's someone who has a book about this, just send it to me. I love to read it. I don't read any books, but like, this is a book I'd read. Um, and yeah. I, I don't have the answer to that I wish I did. Yeah. I think, I think you're onto something that that's something that you want to build. And I think about like my parents' generation and like, it's similar to like your dad's story, you know, they, they overcame a lot to come. And then I think about my own self because I'm a stubborn, I was like, you know, I'm the guy that you're going to knock down and you just be kicking and he'd still be talking, talking, talking back to you. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was like, I couldn't. So they really took me by such surprises. They're like, oh, I'd kill myself. I was like, oh my God. I was like, I would be like right back up and go one more round with this present. But okay, fine. Um, all right. So I've taken up all your time. You got to go. Um, it's a pleasure talking with you. I think um, people should check out Freakonomics MD, the podcast. It's great. Um, you cover many of your papers, some not your papers, but they're all covered superbly. Um, they should check out your publications if they haven't already. Um, and I think you've got some good YouTube videos out there too, if I recall correctly. You got some yeah. TEDx talk. Ted, no, mm -hmm. TED Med yeah, talk. Ted, you got the Ted, Ted Med, Med, not yeah, the X. Yeah. Screw that X. Forget that yeah, X. Ted. You got the And Med. my daughter knows it because I, I I used to drive uh, drive her to school every day and I'd practice it. I'd, it's, like, it's like a rehearsed talk. Mm -hmm. And so I'd rehearse it and she did. And I'd say, honey, can you tell me the Ted Med talk? He said, yes, Babu, Dada. Seven years ago, right here in this city, 
terrorists exploded. Da, 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 da. She, she's heard she it so many times. She, she had a great memory. Yeah, she's she heard it so memory. many times. Um, <laughs> she's got a great memory because her daddy's playing it every day. No? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not. It's not a good memory. It's just, that's what happens when that's all she listens to. Uh, uh, it's like, Daddy, can I watch Ninjago? After you watch my Ted Med talk, honey, yes, you can. <laughs> okay, then full disclosure, I guess. How many times a month do you think we talk? Uh, well, first of all, let's say I call you probably every other day because anytime I'm driving somewhere, I'll, I'll call you. And you know, as you know, I play soccer every day. And sometimes on the way back, you'll, you'll be awake. I'll probably call you every probably three days. I'd say probably once every week, every two weeks. Yeah, yeah I think so. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's accurate. So we know each other pretty well. Okay, Bapu, pleasure to... Pleasure to um, to have you on. Um, uh, I didn't get all the mockery I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Let me just say, Last I just time you got in trouble say, for some of that. <laughs> yeah. Let me just say two things. First of all, thank you for three things. Thank you for okay. having me. Second of all, whoever's listening, check out Freakonomics MD, the podcast. Yeah. Third of all, if you're listening to this podcast, you should check out the YouTube video because Vinay's hair it looks phenomenal. I'm not sure if it's like, you know, hair club for men or if he's got some like uh, Dolce Gabbana product, whatever it is, it's something different. <laughs> well, I'm starting to get the grays, my friend. They're all coming in grayer and grayer. Like just what, you know? It's just a state of mind. <laughs> Bapu Jenna, pleasure to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.